Chapter 21, Tire Shop, India, and Mario Party. So, at the start of October, I got my only chance to work away from the MWR while we were deployed. There was a tire repair shop run by JBR, a government contractor. They did all of the tire-related distribution and repair on vehicles for the FOB. This shop was run by five contractors and five third-country nationals. So what does that mean? Well, third-country nationals, at least in Iraq, tended to be people from India that were hired to come and work doing various jobs on and around the military bases. They worked the kitchens, they worked security, and they worked at various other jobs. Our base security people were largely from Uganda, and there are some stories that I can tell about those folks, but that might require an entirely different book. The tire shop was about a mile from the MWR. Like most things that were around me, the mile distance was pretty much the maximum I'd travel. I'd pass over the gravel of our pad, then pass them the MWR, cross the main road next to the generators, and then hit a strange area of the base. There was a series of random metal buildings and an area of abandoned junk. It honestly looked like something out of a post-apocalyptic movie or video game. After passing through the wasteland, I walked down a small hill to a motor pool surrounded by metal shipping containers acting as a fence. I'd walk through a break in that fence, and the tire shop was under a trio of carport-style enclosures. This tire shop was won by five American contractors, each who made, at minimum, $110,000 a year. The Indian contractors made around $1,000 a month, which for most of them was an enormous amount of money. So, for $610,000 minimum, they had these works. They had these folks working this job who largely sat around waiting for work to happen. They'd work for 10 to 15 minutes hard and go back to not doing much of anything. The U.S. contractors were given two weeks of leave every three months or an increase in pay if they didn't take the two weeks off. Most of them hadn't been home in over a year. At least two of them were on their second three-year contract and hadn't been home at all. That should tell you that my $610,000 figure was low, probably way low. An increase of 20% for every break not taken was what one of the guys told me he made. Now, keep in mind, at the time, I was making around $30,000 a year tax-free in this environment. The contractors, like service members, didn't have to pay taxes. So let's do some math. If they had soldiers doing their mission, which would make sense, we have these E numbers as pay designators that are used across the services. We would have had one E6, two or three E5s, and six soldiers. We'll say 10 people total, with the E6 making probably about 50,000, the E5s making 40,000, and the soldiers 30,000. That would have been at most $350,000, and that's high for the actual money we all would have been making. We would have saved the Army and the Department of Defense over half a million dollars, and we wouldn't have been sitting on our asses working at Damn MDR. This, this, this was the type of rampant waste of money that was poured into the Iraq War. There was so much money spent on jobs that could have been done by soldiers in theater, instead they were given to contractors that cost the American taxpayer double to quadruple what they should have. This was potentially stated as a matter of efficiency, but that's, that's a straw man argument. We'd been trained to be able to do these missions. I was assigned to this tire shop, not to work it, 
but to guard one of the Indian employees. He had to be guarded because his security check hadn't come back clean yet. They were 98% sure he was safe, but he needed a guard at all times to ensure he wasn't going to do anything to hurt anyone, I guess. These gentlemen were mostly from rural eastern India. I know because I actually sat down with a map and asked them where they were from. They were surprised I cared, but I wanted to know the towns, the cities, the states where they were from. I also went out of my way to learn each of their names, but the sands of time have washed them away. What I didn't know and never knew until the last few days I was there was which one of them I was supposed to be watching. I remembered that at least one of the guys from Andhra Pradesh, and the, the town name still escapes me, but... They were good men, from what I could tell of them. And my day at the tire shop would go like this. I'd stroll up, the person on duty would wake up from a nap, totally unaware of where the Indian we were supposed to guard was, and I would sit down in the chair they were using as a cot. I'd look around, I'd see where the crew was, take a mental tally that all five were present, and I'd wave hello. They'd wave back, excited to see me, and bring over a cup of tea. Now... This wasn't American-style Lipton tea shit. No, no, no. This is this is tea that would have made an Englishman cry with joy. If they didn't have chai, it was this uh, another strong black tea that they would drink. And they refused to let me make it, even when I showed them that I knew what I was doing once, when I made them a pot uh, in the middle of a job. They seemed to take it as a matter of pride that they would serve me. I don't know what I did, if this was an honor or if it was just some sort of elaborate joke, but they seemed to honestly enjoy making, serving, and drinking tea with me, and I know I enjoyed it. We didn't talk a lot, we didn't share enough common language, but I still appreciated our relationship. And most days after the cup of tea, I'd tilt the chair back, pull out my Nintendo DS, and play Mario Party. For five or six hours, or however long it took for the battery to die, and my replacement to arrive. So... Over the few weeks I worked there, I would do a regular count of all the Indian gentlemen as my way of keeping track of the one I was supposed to be guarding. And I would play games or read books. I had a ton of books, so there was almost always something to do. The DS, though, was a particular hit with my Indian friends. There was one, I want to say his name was Gujra or something similar, who got really excited when he saw me pull it out. I showed him how to play a few games, and he sometimes would sit and play for an hour or two before realizing that he still had it and would smile apologetically and return it. I have to say, his absolute joy over the electronic game made me not care. He would sit around, and his compatriots would give him shit about how he was playing the game, and he would get as excited as a kid with a new toy. At one point, I almost gave him the DS, but it was a gift given to me, and it wouldn't have been right to pass a gift along that way. Uh, in the last few days of working in the tire shop, I finally realized which of the guys I was officially watching, because he actually stayed back while the rest went on a job. He was a soft-spoken, tall guy who spoke some of the best English of the group, which isn't saying much because most of them didn't speak more than a few dozen words. They knew their jobs, though, and that was the most essential thing for them. As boring as it was, and sometimes strange, working that guard detail was probably one of the highlights of my deployment. I was away from most of the unit, I was meeting people from a part of the world I'd never been to, and I was drinking good tea and goofing off more often than not. I was still in the desert, in a part of the world I didn't want to be, but it wasn't the worst form of hell for those few weeks. Chapter 23. Books. When you're deployed, one of the things that people tend to send is books. Usually these are some random paperback that they've decided they don't want anymore, 
and they think deployed service members would find interesting. Sometimes they're right. Our library was packed with books, and the MWR had three bookshelves full of random titles. Most of them were schlock, books I wouldn't want to read in a normal environment, but I read them anyway because I wanted to keep my mind and eyes occupied at all times. On top of the books that were sent by Good Samaritans, I ordered my own. I used my deployment for three things. Uh, to get in shape, to build a library of literature on Old Norse culture and custom, and to keep myself occupied. I figure I spent about a third of my deployment money on books, both being sent to Germany and being delivered to where I was in Iraq. That might be a slight exaggeration, but I don't think it was off by much. At first, I started putting my books into my wall locker in my room. There was a large shelf at the top, and it quickly filled. Then I started putting the books on top of the wall locker. Then that became full, so I started to stuff them under my bed. Then that started getting crowded. Finally, I found a random bookshelf that someone had left lying around the pad, and I brought it back to my chew. This was common to see random stuff left around. There were a ton of people leaving and moving in on a regular basis. Someone had bought the shelf at some point and sold it on or left it for someone else to take and make their own. So I stuffed and I stuffed that shelf full of books. In the end, I also ended up stuffing books around my bookshelf. It was getting a little out of hand. Before heading home, uh, most soldiers send things home in footlockers. It helps to take some of the load off the shipping limits we had. Since my wife was back in Germany, I started sending her the books I'd bought a few months before we were due to return. This seemed like a straightforward, good idea. Well, I overestimated the weight of that first box. We didn't have a weight limit, and it was over 70 pounds. Yeah, I, I packed that many books into 5 by 2 plastic chest. That's all that was in it, too. Books. I emailed my wife to warn her that it was coming, and she'd asked if she'd be able to carry it back. I told her no. She could probably get it on the bus, though. You see, she didn't drive. She'd never lived in a place where she had to learn and hadn't picked up a skill or a driver's license. She got the box home on the bus. This was a bus that had a first step that was up like two feet. I'm not sure how she pulled it off, to be honest. She then dragged the damn thing up two flights of stairs, stairs with a gap too, so there wasn't an easy way to pull the thing along on the shitty wheels that it had attached. When I spoke to her the night she received it, she was pissed, which was understandable, and I remember sheepishly saying, Oh, the box had wheels, though. And she still gets angry whenever I bring this up. She got pissed just now when I mentioned it. In the end, I'm pretty sure I sent home at least five boxes of books. Thankfully, she got her friend to help her get all the rest of them, and none of the rest were quite as heavy as that one was. I'd learned my lesson. Uh, while I was ordering books to Iraq, I was also ordering a lot of books directly to our address in Germany. There were easily several dozen books that arrived during my deployment. Um, these books and others fill the 10, I think actually up to 15 bookshelves in our current house. Because of all these books, I got to be friendly with the NCO that ran our mailroom. He was a decent guy. In the last few weeks of our deployment, when I didn't want to go to the temporary tent, we stayed in. Uh, I'd crash in the mailroom. This caused a big stir because people thought I was getting some sort of special fucking treatment, which is stupid. It was a metal trailer. It wasn't my fault I'd made friends with the dude that had access to that trailer, and it was slightly more comfortable than the tent. Chapter 24, Scorpion Fly Swatter. There are a lot of random creatures, creepy crawlers, and animals in Iraq. There's a bit of a wild dog problem, and there are traps set for them in random places around the base. 
occasionally you'd see one of these dogs trapped, but usually they would probably open the trap, get the food, and trot off. Most people focus on the camel spiders when they talk about Iraq's arachnids, and yeah, yeah, I, I know camel spiders aren't really spiders, but they are arachnids. Uh, they're a part of a different family called uh, Solifugae, and camel spiders grow to be pretty large, but I have to admit, I don't think I saw one the entire time I was deployed. Perhaps I'm dysfunctional and just didn't see them, but more likely I just wasn't in the right place at the right time. What I did see were scorpions. Now, I have a bit of history with scorpions. For a few years in my youth, I lived in Florida, and where we lived there were a ton of them. I once reached into our mailbox and had to pull my hand away as quickly as possible because there was a scorpion scurrying down the piece of mail I was holding. It was traumatizing, and though I have no issues with spiders, scorpions and I are not friends. I was no more than six when that happened, I think. So one night, between 1 and 2 a.m., I was zoning out, playing video games while manning the MWR. I had moved to the desk computer from my laptop to write an email when I saw something scurrying under my keyboard. I jumped up and grabbed the fly swatter. At that point, I'd just seen its outline, but hadn't really seen the thing itself. I lifted up the keyboard, and I saw this little pink-white scorpion rush out, and I slapped at it with my swatter. It dove under the computer. I waited. I knew it would have to crawl back out eventually. It did. I struck left, and it ducked right. I swung hard, and I missed. It fled under the keyboard. I threw back its hiding place and swiped out again. I was moments too late that time. I held that fly swatter like a katana. It was my Excalibur. This was my weapon of choice. I was the scorpion-hunting Highlander motherfucker. We ducked back and forth like a bullfighter and bull for about 20 to 30 minutes, and finally it rushed back through a hole in the wall, probably the way it had entered the MWR. I looked down at the fly swatter, hung my head, and I realized I'd lost the fight. I felt defeated, but valiant at the same time. That was probably the second most dangerous event in my entire deployment. Chapter 39, D&D in the Desert. Two or three months into my deployment, I randomly got into a discussion about Dungeons and Dragons with someone while I was sitting behind the desk of the MWR. I don't remember why, I'm not 100% sure if it was Danville or perhaps someone else brought it up. It could have been Danville. It's the type of thing I can see him randomly asking me about. Anyway, it came up and I started having a discussion with a few people who came out of the woodworks about running a game. I'd either brought or purchased copies of the 3.5 rules and I had them with me. Looking back on things, you'd think I'd remember exactly the details, but books blended together, so who knows. Now, I'd been a gamer for a long time before I joined the army, and gaming is actually a pretty common activity in the military that some people might not realize. For me, I'd been a LARPer first, that's live action role playing, where you stand up and actually act out your character, and then I became a tabletop gamer second. And Dungeons and Dragons was a decent enough game, but I enjoyed storyteller games like Vampire the Masquerade by White Wolf, and that being said, it was often easier to get people interested in the tactical side of D&D, and it was common enough to mention the game and people would come out of nowhere with interest in playing. At this point, when I started running my game in Iraq, I'd been running games for about 10 years or so. Now, 
Gaming is a big part of my life again, and it's something I've integrated into projects for reach-out role-playing games and high-level games and other things that I'm doing out there. Check it out. Give it a Google or a Bing if you like. I don't care. Just look it up somehow. So tabletop gaming is half the reason I'm stuck to writing. It's really uh, the reason I have any public speaking skills at all. Uh, if anyone ever tells you that gaming and D&D are useless hobbies, I'll fight them for you. Gaming is one of the best things that ever happened to me. When we started gaming in Iraq, at first we played once a week, and then we ended up playing twice a week. I found out that my roommate was a D&D guy, and I found out there was a lot, and I really mean a lot, of interest in playing the game in my unit and other units that used our MWR. I'm pretty sure our game night was Friday nights. We would play for four or five hours, and I was the GM, or Danville was, or sometimes uh, one of the other guys would be as well. Our crew was pretty diverse, and we ended up having six regular participants. I'm pretty sure we also inspired some other people to run games, but we didn't have enough space in the MWR movie area to have any more players than six. This became the highlight of my week, and though deployment was hell, I really enjoyed gaming with this group. The game's story wasn't particularly deep, it wasn't something that really made me feel like I was exploring myself or society, but it was good, fun, escapist, uh, and it was awesome. Beyond that, it won me an award. You see, uh, about a little over halfway through our deployment, the sergeant major of our brigade wandered into our MWR while I was on duty. I sprang up, gave him the greeting of the day, and asked if he was there to use the facility or if I could help him with anything. He looked me up and down, looked around the MWR without saying a word, and walked back over to the desk. Specialist Heath, huh? Uh, yes, sergeant major. I've heard good things about the MWR, and you in particular. Tell me a bit about what you do to help soldiers around here. I briefly described the MWR in general, and then I mentioned that I ran some game events for people. He nodded, and he said he would be back. A few minutes later, he returned, took another look around, and said he would talk to my NCOs about recommending all of us for an award. He was, I guess, impressed we kept the facility as clean and as well run as we did, and considering it was a shit assignment, that's high praise. So the next day, I brushed the whole thing off, as usual kind of bullshit, smoke blowing that happens from leadership in the military. Instead, our NCO for the night shift was there, and he had award paperwork ready to fill out. We went back and forth on what bullets we should use, what award we should request, and we went from there. And a trick in the army is to always request a step higher award than you expect to receive, that way it gets downgraded to the award you deserve, rather than the one below it. My award bullet included this line. Runs twice weekly morale and team building exercises for groups of 7 to 10 people. Considering at the time I was running two games, it was accurate. And it was also managing the time and equipment we would need to run the games. Part of me felt strange putting language about Dungeons and Dragons on a military award document, but I ran with it. I figured the worst thing that would happen would be that they would deny the whole thing or send it back to the unit for changes to the language. We applied for an Army Commendation Medal, which I didn't deserve for running D&D in the desert. However, a few months before we redeployed, I was given my award. There was no ceremony, it was just handed to me one day, which is honestly the best way for me to receive an award. I hated all the pomp and circumstance over bullshit awards. Now. Something that involved actual valor or bravery? Fine, I get that. Make a ceremony out of the whole thing. But there, in the box they randomly handed me, was an Army Achievement Medal. 
I remember looking down at the award and just grinning. I'm actually proud of this award. I enjoyed what I was doing, and it showed that I cared about our MWR and the people that used it. Most of the people in our D&D game were on our convoy patrols, and it was a great way for them to unwind, relax, and disconnect from their missions. Looking back on it, this is still the award that I got that I'm the proudest of. I did something fun that honestly helped other people break away from the drudgery of our deployment for a few hours, and I was awarded appropriately for my leadership and display of Army values. I honestly used to feel a little embarrassed about it, but the more I think about it, the more it was one of the few awards I honestly deserved, and I treasure it. Dungeons & Dragons is a game that offers not just a simple escape, but it's a form of community building. So if you got an issue with that, with me or this award, I don't care. I'm going to treasure it forever. Chapter 47. Golf Cart, Mortar, Grimes. This particular story is probably the most traumatic, scary, and at the same time, kind of hilarious one to remember. It's hard, though. Uh, It's hard to think over in some ways. It sticks with me like the MRSA scar I got from basic training. Actually, let me talk about that first. I think it's pertinent. I mentioned it before, but let me tell the whole tale. Um, Save me from talking about the mortars for a bit. In basic training, I woke up one morning to a small pimple on my left arm wasn't uncommon, as I have a skin condition called keratosis pilaris, and I have body acne issues, and I've had them since I was a child. Shrug, move on, not an issue, whatever. I used some hand sanitizer, cleaned it out, and figured it wouldn't be an issue. Well, the next day there were two pimples now in the same place, and that was weird, but again, not that strange, and I did what I needed to and moved on. The next day we were headed to a field exercise, and this is where things started to go downhill with my arm. I rolled my sleeve up, and instead of a pimple was a small mountain. I put some hand sanitizer on it and tried to ignore it. Finally, I talked to one of my drill sergeants, and he recommended I go to the TMC, that's the Troop Medical Clinic. In the morning, during sick call, um, so I nodded and agreed. However... Another drill sergeant got in his head to tell us all that we shouldn't go to sick call for dumb shit, his words, and I figured he was talking about me, so I didn't go. Two days later, my arm was in complete agony. I couldn't hold it. I couldn't hold my arm up. Um, I definitely couldn't hold a weapon with my left arm. I could barely move it, to be honest. I finally slowly dragged myself over to a drill sergeant and showed him what was going on. Uh, They immediately uh, medevaced me from the field exercise, and that drill sergeant berated me for not going to sick call. Um, And then they dropped me off at the clinic to get seen. They diagnosed me with uh, MRSA, or MRSA, an antibiotic-resistant strain of staph infection. They had to squeeze out the pus from the wound every day and started me on heavy, specific antibiotics. I spent the next week and a half in the TMC every morning, We went through four known and effective antibiotics before we found one that worked. On the third set, I asked what would happen if none of these worked. The doctor looked at me with a straight face. We'll have to cut off your arm. The next day I broke down in the TMC. Here I was, a week out from graduating from basic training, and there was a good chance I was going to lose my arm from an infection. Thankfully, it didn't happen. The last set of antibiotics worked, And all I have to remind me of this is a quarter-sized scar on my left arm, near to where my elbow crease is. 
I also ended up getting a recurring infection in my leg and right between my butt crack while I was in AIT. And I'll never forget those situations. And they are nearly the same type of scar that this story from Iraq is. Moments I'll never forget burned into the retina of my mind. So let's flash forward three years. At the end of the open circle meetings, we would go to Green Beans Coffee. That was a two-mile drive from the chapel we used for our meetings. And this is the Green Beans I would walk to sometimes if I was feeling froggy. This was also uh, and always an interesting trek. Some of the members in the circle would have vehicles, either loaned from their unit to get to the chapel or because of the particular jobs they were doing while deployed. Some didn't, but we would always find a way to carpool with the large majority of people. I would then usually walk back to my chew after leaving Green Beans to get a little mental health break before going to work or going back to sleep. I frequently took my one night off a week, the nights we met for circle, so I would have more time to relax. Uh, the base we were on was defended by a phalanx system. I've described this before. Um, it's an impressive, modern, heavy-duty, anti-RPG missile defense system. Uh, it was originally designed for use on ships, and it wasn't perfect. Uh, frequently, a mortar uh, or another device would make it through on the first shot without being stopped. This was frequently a non-issue, as whomever was aiming didn't have a chance to pinpoint, uh, pinpoint the specific location, uh, so there was a ton of dead space on post. Sometimes things did get hit, though. And this time, that was much closer to home than usual. Grimes is a friend of mine in the unit. He was a white guy from the Detroit area. He was nominally neo-pagan, and he generally seemed like a good person. At least that was my perception of him at the time. Down the road, I changed my mind on him as he was accused of actions that I have severe problems with. Let me say this. Using drugs is a bad idea in the military, and Grimes was one of the people constantly using spice or whatever thing he could get his hands on. Worse, he liked to push these products on other people, particularly women. And he ended up being accused of using drugs to inebriate women during our time in Germany. And I didn't find out any details about this until after we had both left the military. But I immediately defriended him on social media and removed him from my life. And looking back, the warning signs were there. I should have seen it based on the behavior of the women who hung out with him and then didn't, and based on his own words, but I'm sorry for my blindness in this situation. And I'm sorry for my naivete. So if there's one thing I could go back and change during my entire military service, it would be beat this guy until he was purple. If you're reading this dude or listening to this, don't, don't let me find you in my space. Your behavior is disgusting. That said... At the time, I thought he was a good guy, and I hung out with him a lot. He had the use of a small golf cart, which we used to get around here and there on post, and technically it was probably being repaired by the element of the unit he was in, but we still used it as a semi-private vehicle, and we needed one. And that night, we had spent a good amount of time at the chapel, and the conversation was really engaging with the entire group, and I wish I could remember the content, but it just doesn't stick with me. Grimes and I decided we were going to Green Beans to keep chatting with people. Uh, we climbed into the golf cart, put on our Kevlars, helmets, also known as an ACH, and strapped ourselves in. The whine of the motor filled my ears. The dust kept, kicked up on each side, and I can still see the dingy white chews as we drove past them. The blast walls stood like gray tombs covering portions of the pad, and we were chatting back and forth and laughing about something, and I 
turned to Grimes to tell him another joke when it happened. I remember his grin at the last comment I made. I remember opening my mouth, and then I remember the sound and the sensation of the explosion. We weren't close, but we were close enough. Later, I estimated the RPG hit about 400 meters from our location, maybe closer. It's not close enough that we were in any real danger, but it was enough to deafen us, and it was enough to make Grimes slam on the brakes, swerve to the side, and we stopped. We drove another few feet, we stopped again, we both looked around and heard the phalanx go off again, taking down a second attempt to hit the base. I can still feel the sweat that started to pour down my face. I went wide-eyed, taking in everything through all senses that were still working. And I remember, clear as day, turning to Grimes and saying, Shit, mate, should we still go to Green Beans? Which, thinking back on it, was fucking hilarious. He looked at me, shocked, smiled, laughed, and said, I don't know, should we? Looking around, I shrugged and said we should probably check in with the unit HQ because they were probably going to put out a mandatory check-in for everyone. At the time, neither of us really internalized how shaken we were, nor was it obvious that the chew had been flattened by the RPG. Later on, at work, I was sitting in the gym when a crew of soldiers doing a, uh, a convoy logistic patrol mission walked by. One of them was talking about how his chew had been destroyed. Usually, uh, if he hadn't had a mission briefing, he would have been sleeping when the RPG hit. He had actually left late and missed being killed by less than 15 minutes. I guess that's the, the closest I come to a personal war story during my deployment. It's this weird, surreal conceptualization that no one was hurt, but we were always just a few minutes away from something like that happening, anytime, anywhere. And... I wouldn't say I have any sort of post-traumatic stress from it, but it is strange to think about how it all went down. I wasn't super close, but I was close enough to feel a visceral sensation from the explosion. I wasn't impacted directly, but I knew the person who was. And that explains the large majority of my military service. I wasn't ever hurt in the line of action, but I knew those who were. And I was always one step removed from direct trauma. Chapter 52, Redeployment. Our redeployment process took us several weeks. We weren't allowed to tell anyone what our exact day of return would be, but the good thing is that most of us didn't know, so we couldn't let the cat out of the bag anyway. The unit that was replacing us was closer to the size of the unit we replaced, so they took over most of our missions around the base, and a different team took over the security missions we were running. We moved out of our choose a little over three weeks before we actually left, and we ended up living in large tents for those last few weeks. Most of our gear had been packed up, and all the books I bought had already been sent home. We moved into the tents, and this restricted our personal space a lot, and this was an atmosphere uh, where a friend of mine had a bit of a breakdown, um, and I'm not going to dive into that right now uh, on this recording, but... I did my best to try and manage my own need for a bit of personal space and deal with the large press of bodies in this tent. I kept telling myself it was almost over. As long as I didn't die now, I was almost home. That's a sort of basic fatalism that had seeped into my thinking, and it wasn't too off the wall. Uh, A lot of stupid things would go down in the last few weeks of deployment because people would get complacent, and I didn't want that to happen to me or anyone else on our team. 
the tents were crowded, and I ended up talking to our mailroom NCO one day. He told me he was sleeping in the mailroom instead of staying in the tents, and I thought this sounded like a much better decision. I asked him if I could crash with him, not thinking it would be an issue. I was still in the company area of operations, right? Nope. As I mentioned before, this caused a huge fight to happen. Our first sergeant yelled at our mailroom guy. My NCO yelled at me. There were several officers running around arguing about if it was allowed or not. This wasn't even because of sensitive mail or anything like that. This argument was simply about shared shit. The leaders in the unit wanted all of us to experience the same level of terrible conditions. This is the sort of bullshit leadership we dealt with on a regular basis. We were already under investigation for things that were missing. So I get the feeling they were taking charge because they didn't want to be seen as lax on anything. They wasted their time with petty shit because they were incapable of dealing with the important elements of their jobs. One of the coolest parts of the time we spent in the tents, though, was the chance to play a lot more D&D. Our overall missions were over, and we had a lot more free time on our hands. Uh, one of our LTs, lieutenants, had never played, and he really wanted to play the game. Um, he was probably one of the best first-time D&D players I've seen in a long time. He got immediately into character, a halfling, and was even willing to do voices and roleplay right from the start. We played two to three times a week, usually in the afternoon and evening around our unit formation times. One day, we were deep into the game, and finally someone looks at their watch. Fuck, we missed a formation. And not by a little bit, but by 45 minutes. The LT looked up, shook his head. I got it. No one will get in trouble. We were in the middle of an important mission briefing. Now, let's figure out how we're going to kill this fucking dragon. And so we got out of something that was mandatory because this officer wanted to pretend to kill a dragon. Uh, honestly, this is the life I want to lead right here. Uh, we eventually got ready to head back, got our flight details, and flew from Baghdad International Airport to Kuwait. And I've never loved flying. But I flew about 46 flights one year and dealt with it without too many problems. That was until our redeployment flight. Uh, and this fucking flight has made me terrified to fly. Uh, and honestly, every flight since then, I've been a nervous wreck. Uh, doing a little bit better recently, but still struggling. Our pilot was doing training for combat drops into Kuwait. And these were maneuvers where the plane would drop 5,000 to 10,000 feet in a couple of seconds. They didn't tell us they were going to do this training ahead of time. They only gave us a warning after the third time they did so. And this fucked me up. I ended up yelling at an officer on our flight out of Kuwait because I was so stressed out from the flight from Iraq. Like, not just a little aggression, I full-on lost my shit. He looked at me cross-eyed and told me to sit the fuck down. Thankfully, I did. Uh, and someone ended up giving me sleeping pills in the end, but I didn't sleep at all. I was so strung out from stress that I just sat white-knuckled the entire second flight. We spent about a day in Kuwait, but I don't remember this trip because I was dreading getting on a plane. I sort of slept, but mostly I was terrified we were going to die on that plane before we made it to Germany. And while we were in Kuwait, every redeploying unit uh, goes through a rigorous customs check enforced by naval customs. We were there for nearly four hours. And the normal wait times were eight to ten hours. At the four-hour mark, though, they let all of us pass through without any further checks. Later on, there were dozens of people that admitted to having contraband shit. They would have been found if the proper customs procedures were followed. Soldiers uh, will pull some shit if they get the chance, and the number of knives and other stuff stored in buttstocks and bags 
it would probably make you nauseous. Fraud, waste, and abuse is rampant in the military, from the officers downward, and the only people that can put a stop to it are corrupt themselves. So don't join the military if you have strong morals. They will be fucking tested every step of the way, because some shady shit is always going down. During our deployment, I didn't get to spend a lot of time with the soldiers whom I discuss uh, Aussie diggers with um, when we were in Kuwait back a long time ago. But back in Kuwait during our redeployment, I got the chance to see them again, and we started going places together again. It was good to be reunited with them. And one of the guys stopped me while we were in the latrine shaving. Guerrero was a good dude, or he seemed so to me. He didn't cause trouble ever. He seemed to have his shit together. He stopped me and asked if uh, I'd ever had my face go numb while I was shaving, and I said, no, and asked him what he meant. He said his face was feeling strange, and he kind of shook his head, and we walked out together. A couple of hours later, I went to check on him while I was taking a nap in one of our billets. So, as I woke him up, I swear to God, while I was watching, one side of his face started to droop, and I was convinced he was having a stroke, and I demanded we go to the TMC immediately. We rushed him over, and eventually we were told we'd have to leave him there. Uh, thankfully, he wasn't having a stroke. He had a bout of Bell's palsy. And thankfully, the area in Germany we were stationed also has one of the best research facilities for nerve diseases. So after about a year or so of therapy, you couldn't tell that he'd had massive damage to the nerves um, on one side of his face. And we didn't die on our flight from Kuwait to Germany. <laughs> we're fine. Uh, the sleeping pills never took hold, though. Uh, but they did calm my nerves to some degree. And instead of flying into Frankfurt or another big German airport, we flew into a smaller airport closer to our base. We were shuffled onto buses, and we were told that we'd be allowed off the buses immediately to meet with our families when we got home, which was bullshit. Chapter 53, Arriving Back at Post. I know I was exhausted when we finally made it back to base after the insanity that was our redeployment travel. I was also dirty. I don't think I'd had a shower in almost three days by that point, but honestly, I didn't give a flying fuck. At this point, I just wanted to hug my wife, take a shower, and sleep. We knew we were going to have a formation the next morning at 9 a.m. We weren't going to be able to get drunk. Let me segue to tell you about the reasons my unit were given a no-alcohol order for at least 72 hours after returning from a deployment. People in the military drink a lot. A shit ton. If that's a shock to you, I'm sorry. Being a non-drinker in the army is a difficult proposition. I know of a few folks that didn't, but the large majority did and do. Same with smoking. Most soldiers I know smoke or dip. Uh, I don't smoke, never have, um, and I was probably one of a small handful um, that didn't. And not the same with drinking, though. Uh, I've always enjoyed a few beers, bottles of wine, cases of liquor. I'm sure that's the right drink limits, right? I don't drink a lot anymore, though, uh, and I was never a problem drinker while I was in the military. Most of the drinking in the army was pretty low-key, a few hard drinking sessions in Korea and Germany, but overall I had limited my intake. I don't and still don't like losing control. Now, I pretty much never drink more than one drink, two beers, and I'm feeling a slight buzz and I call it quits. The point is, most army people are a thousand times worse than I have ever been. A common drink at the local Irish pub was called a tower. This tower was filled with vodka and Red Bull and cost 100 euros. That's between 150 and 180 dollars depending on exchange rate, and that's a common drink to order. 
so common that it was unusual not to see at least one tower anytime you looked around the bar. The most lethal time to be a soldier uh, is not when you're deployed, actually, but the 72 hours after coming home from a field exercise or deployment. This is usually because of driving too fast, drinking slash alcohol poisoning, or killing one another in brawls or some form of assault. The percentage of fights that have started over failed relationships, broken homes, it's ridiculously high, and a lot of these happen in the aftermath of a deployment. So, our unit took the not-so-terrible action of making it official that we could not drink or drive a vehicle for 72 hours after getting back to our post. We were scheduled to have a formation at 9 a.m. the next morning, and one at least every day for those three days. After that, whatever, drink if you want to, drive if you want to, but for that first period of time, you were going to get fucked up if a single drop of alcohol passed your lips. Did that stop some stupid fucks? Of course not. But it was still a valiant fucking effort by people that you think can legislate away stupidity. Guess what? Stupid does what stupid does. Thankfully, we didn't have any deaths, so at least it was better than some units. We pulled onto base with a cheer, and we got excited that we were going to see our family immediately. Uh, we were wrong. They pulled the buses in front of the gym and told us that we were going to have a ceremony. We were not allowed to see our families until we got into formation, listened to some fucking bullshit speech, and then we'd be allowed to see them. Even better, they were forced to wait for us inside the gym. They were not allowed out to even look at us while we were going in. They forced us into the back entrance, made us line up to wash our hands and faces, and then put us in formation. I spent the entire time in that formation looking for my wife in the audience. I have no idea what was said. I had no respect for it, and I was sick and fucking tired of all the bullshit. One of the weird things, though, were some of the outfits that people's spouses had chosen to wear for the homecoming meeting. And look... Uh, I get wanting to get physical after a year away from the person you have a coital relationship with, but you should probably keep the bedroom outfits in the bedroom. Uh, there were several folks wearing very skimpy dresses. At least one dude was wearing a lumberjack outfit. Uh, the worst was the woman wearing a corset-style dress that was neon green and black and didn't reach her knees, and she looked incredibly uncomfortable, but her husband was happy as hell to see her wearing it. So... Uh, to each their own, it didn't seem like a good decision at the time and place, though. Eventually, I found my wife finally after wandering around for nearly 20 minutes after the formation was finally let out. I cried. She cried. We almost punched someone that was taking pictures. And those two sentences about sum up our relationship. When we went home, my wife had prepared a ritual to thank our gods, uh, ancestors, and to ritually welcome me home from a deployment. It included a small toast of alcohol. Did I drink that drop of mead? You better fucking believe it. Fuck the stupid order. I only had the single sip, though. My rebellion against the unit leadership only went so far. So, I was finally done. Finally done with the deployment. I want to say thank you to supporting Deployed and Back Again on Kickstarter. I want to say thank you for everyone that has listened to these chapters that I have recorded. If you're interested in more of the stories from my deployment, they are in the book. You can pick up the book from Lulu. You can pick up the book on Amazon. I recommend doing that. For now, though, Semper Gumby.